The scripture today is Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 28. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was formless. A formless void and darkness covered the face of the deep, while a wind from God swept over the face of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be a dome in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. So God made the dome and separated the waters that were under the dome from the waters that were above the dome, and so it was. God called the dome sky, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the sky be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear, and so it was. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good, and then God said, let the earth put forth vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees of every kind on earth that bear fruit with it, the seed in it. And so it was. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed of every kind, and trees of every kind bearing fruit with the seed in it. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the dome of the sky to separate the day from the night. And let there be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let there be lights in the dome of the sky to give light upon the earth. And so it was. God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. God set them in the dome of the sky and gave light upon the earth to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, Let the waters bring forth swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the dome of the sky. So God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves of every kind, of which the waters swam, and every winged bird of every kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters and the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures of every kind, cattle and creeping things, and wild animals of the earth of every kind. And so it was. God made the wild animals of the earth of every kind and the cattle of every kind and everything that creeps upon the ground of every kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle and over all the wild animals of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them. The word of God for the people of God.
Almighty God, you are the source of creation. You are the bringer of every blessing, every good gift, and we are your thankful people. As we take time now to reflect on your word, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, I've yet to do it, but I admit that I'm fascinated by the advertisements. Advertisements for companies like 23andMe and Ancestry.com, who take some of your DNA, just a little bit of saliva in a tube, and they can tell you the story of your whole family history, ethnic backgrounds and regions that your, your genes are traced to, even if you never realized it before. Now, part of my fascination is, is kind of this ongoing suspicion. This ongoing suspicion of, is this really real, or do they just get the, the spit tube in the mail, throw it in the garbage, and, and some college kid is saying, Mike Meomoyle from Michigan, I'm going to guess he's 20% English, and 12% and German, and 10% Italian, and 2% and Smurf, and 1% Wookiee. And... But I'm also fascinated by the ways that it is possible and, and how much it has been shown to be real. Amy's mom did it a couple of years ago and is connected with long-lost cousins on both sides of her families, cousins who helped fill her in with parts of her family history that she didn't know about before. But sometimes you don't need to do extensive genetic studies to figure out who is related to who. All you have to do is take a good look and the evidence is right there. You might say, that child there, that child there is a spitting image of her mother. <laughs> or you might say, that child there, he's the spitting image of his father. No 23 and me needed. Now, do you know where you get that, that phrase, spitting image? There are a couple different theories that have nothing to do with the spit you have to give 23andMe to collect. One is that the, the spit in, in spitting image refers to kind of a, a euphemism of genetic material that gets transmitted from one generation to another. But the other is that it's a contraction of the words spirit and image. In us, we hold both the spirit and the image of those who have come before us, which is sort of what we find in the story of Genesis. In Genesis chapters 1 and 2, it's, it's our origin story. They contain a theological truth that no genetic test can ever capture. God ushers in creation, light and darkness, dry land and vast seas, grasses and herbs and trees and fruit, sea creatures and cattle and all those creeping things, and it was declared good. And then God speaks, let us make human beings in our image. Make them reflecting our nature so that they can be responsible for the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the cattle, and yes, the earth itself, and every animal that moves on the face of the earth. Genesis 1 goes on to say, God created human beings in God's image, reflecting God's nature. God created them male and female, and God blessed them. If you read on to Genesis 2, we find some slightly different details. This is the story where, where man is created before the woman. But one of those details is that, that God formed man out of the dirt and out of the water of the ground, and he blew, he blew into the nostrils the breath of life. And that breath in Hebrew is ruach. It's a fun word to say, ruach. It carries the meaning not only of breath, but also of wind and of spirit. 
It's a word that has deep resonance all throughout the Bible, for it's the, the ruach of God, it's the spirit of God, the wind of God that hovers over the face of the waters at the beginning of creation. It's the ruach of God, the Holy Spirit that fills the room in Acts where the disciples have gathered, enabling them to preach and to go forth and do ministry in many tongues and to many lands. So taken together, the Genesis accounts our proclamation that we are made. We are made in the spirit and in the image of God. We are made in the spirit and in the image of God. Have you really considered that? Have you claimed that truth in your life? See, the implications are enormous. First, I think of what, mean, what it means for us to, to be in the spirit and the image of God means that, that maybe we are called to take part in God's creation. God who brings forth light and life, God who fills the earth with every good and green thing, invites us not only to be recipients and be blessed by this creation, but to participate within it. One of the things that struck me in recent years has been the shift from trying to just be consumers to being creators with a renewed interest in, in DIY and, and what's called the maker movement today. Adam Savage, who some of you might know from the TV show Mythbusters, recently wrote a book on this. It's written from a purely secular perspective, but I think it, it parallels this theological truth. In the book, he says this. He says, making is more than the physical act of building. It's dancing. It's sewing. It's cooking. It's writing songs. It's silkscreening. It's breaking new trails, both literally and figuratively. Making, as my friend Andrew Coy says, is simply a new name for one of the oldest endeavors of humanity, creation. He goes on to say, whenever we are driven to reach out, creating something from nothing, whether it's physical like a chair or more temporal and ethereal like a poem, we're contributing something of ourselves to the world. We are taking our experiences and filtering it through our words and our hands, our voices or our bodies, and we're putting something in the culture that didn't exist before. Putting something in the world that didn't exist before is the broadest definition of, of making, which means all of us can be makers, all of us can be creators. Have you thought about that? Have you thought about how your lives, your hobbies, your interests, your work is an act of, of creation, an act of being born in the spirit and the image of God? You are a unique child of God, created in God's image to offer your own creations to the world. And that creation doesn't have to be a painting that hangs in a museum or a 500-page book that makes a bestseller list. It's tending the garden that offers the world beautiful colors and healthy food. It's adding our voice to the choir to make beautiful music. It's stringing together words in a handwritten note that, that simply tells somebody how much we care about them. It's that home improvement project of fixing what is broken, sewing what is torn, making a meal to feed your family or bless others. These are acts of creation. They are acts of creation that are always done in the spirit and in the image of God. Offering what we have to the world, to those around us, is always a sacred endeavor. A sacred gift for God is always at the heart of it, whether we recognize it or not. Only you can do what you can do. Even if you think you don't have the gifts that match others, maybe you don't sing like Cher or paint like Picasso, maybe you can't build a porch like Bob Vila or decorate like Martha Stewart, 
What we need to understand is that, that our words, your vision, your gifts, your talents are still needed because they're a unique expression of what God has done and what God is doing in you. Your work, your art is your own, and even if it exists just to bring one other person pleasure, it changes the world for the better. To be created in the image of God means not only are we called to create, but we are also called to protect what is created. The language of Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 can be open to interpretation. The, the New Revised Standard Version that we heard says, Let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the wild animals of the earth. And that word dominion can be, can be a tough one. Is it the same as dominate? possibly meaning that we can be as careless and as reckless as we want with God's creation. The Common English Bible phrases it just a little bit differently. It says that humanity is called to take charge of creation of the birds and the fish and of the livestock. And the message says we're called to be responsible for creation. Again, our understanding, I think, to this, to this can be complemented by what's in Genesis 2, where it says that God made Adam to till and to cultivate the land. John Holbert explains that the Hebrew word here has a more basic meaning. It means to serve or to protect or to guard, which I think makes sense if we put it in the larger context. See, if we're created in God's image, we just need to look to God's nature, and God's nature doesn't seem to be one of domination and force, but of love and protection. Psalm 23 doesn't paint the picture of God as a greedy shepherd punishing the sheep when they don't perform, ignoring dangerous conditions, or poisoning potential predators. Psalm 23 tells us that God is the good shepherd who walks beside the sheep, who protects them, who provides nourishment, good food, and clean water to meet their needs. Is it possible that we, too, are called to be like-minded caretakers of God's creation? that we're called to serve and protect the natural world, that the good gifts God has given us for our lives and for the lives of our children and for all of creation. Now, I know we can be treading on dangerous ground here because we've turned the care of the environment into a political, a political issue, but I'm not sure that it needs to be. I'd like to believe this is one area where we can find common ground, both morally and, and ethically, that unites us all. For it was Abraham Lincoln who created the Yosemite Grant Act, protecting the land in the Yosemite Valley and setting the foundation for our national parks. It's Theodore Roosevelt who signed the Antiquities Act to create and preserve public lands. It was Richard Nixon who signed the Clean Air Act, protecting the earth and to maintain clean water and clean air and safe spaces for animals doesn't have to be some, some vast liberal conspiracy. It should be in the interest of everyone, and we might disagree about the means. You can argue the pros and cons of our electric cars and solar panels, but I think we should all be united in a common desire to find more sustainable practices that minimize harm to human health and to the environment. To be created in the image of God gives us not only responsibility over all the earth, but responsibility and respect to each other. Georgia Harkness was a Methodist theologian of the early 20th century. She's someone that paved the way for the ordination of women. There wouldn't be Pastor Amy or Reverend Carol if it weren't for the work of, of Georgia Harkness all those years ago. And she shares this in one of her books. She says, we are children of God, 
and we are his children made in his image with the stamp of divinity upon our souls. She says to hold this belief about humanity is vital to our Christian outlook and action. Upon it hinges many issues. Take, for example, democracy. Whatever the political system, there can be no democracy except that which is fixed on the conviction that all human beings of whatever race or whatever color, class or sex are of supreme worth in God's sight and therefore to be treated as persons. This conviction is the only real leverage by which we can combat racial prejudice economic exploitation, mass unemployment, forced labor, or other forms of slavery. Only, excuse me, only on the basis of equity and inherent worth of men and women, adults and children, old persons and young, can family fellowship truly exist. Not until this principle is extended to include all persons in all nations in the family of God, both nations great and small, white and colored, victor and vanquished, can we even have an international order that is founded on the ideal of justice for all? Without this foundation, we shall not have peace. See, to be created in the image of God is to honor and respect that gift of creation of others. It's to extend trust and compassion to others. It's to use what we have and what we create for the benefit of others. It is to give. Because that's part of God's nature, too. God is a giver. Do you remember the words of John 3.16? For God so loved the earth that he gave us his son. God is a giver, and we who are created in God's image are called to be givers, too. But I think if we're honest, if we're really honest with ourselves, we can confess that, that sometimes it's hard to give, especially when we live in a culture that is all about taking and consuming and receiving. There's a book on, and a, a PBS special that ran a few years ago on the topic of, of affluenza. Affluenza was seen as, as being this disease that plagues our society today. It says where we face this bloated, sluggish, and unfulfilled feeling that results in efforts to keep up with the Joneses. It's an epidemic of stress, overwork, waste, and indebtedness caused by the dogged pursuit of the American dream. Now, the book was written several years ago. It was written about 2001. So some of the figures here might have changed, but I think the spirit is still the same in the statistics. Back then, they said that we spend more on shoes and jewelry and watches, about $80 billion a year, than we do on higher education, which is about $65 billion. In 1986, America had more high schools than shopping centers, but by 2001, that trend had reversed, and there were twice as many shopping centers as there were high schools. About 83% of Americans today visit a mall or shopping center each week, but they report that only about 40% will say they went to church, and the actual number is, is more like 20%. So, so about 50% of the population is even lying about being at church this last week. <laughs> Adam Hamilton says this. He says, Our souls were created in the image of God, but they have been distorted. We are meant to desire God, but we have turned this desire towards possessions. We are meant to find security in God, but we find it in amassing wealth. We are meant to love people, but instead compete with them. We are meant to enjoy the simple pleasures of life, but we busy ourselves with pursuing money and pursuing things. We are meant to be generous and share with those in need, but we selfishly hoard resources for ourselves. 
We are meant to be generous. We are meant to be givers. It's part of what it means to be made in the image of God. In the Generosity Challenge book, we're told about the story of A.J. Jacobs, who um, years ago wrote a book called The Year of Living Biblically. In the book, A.J. Jacobs tries to follow the Bible as, as literally as possible. It means trying to wear things like not wear clothes mix, of mixed fibers, but it also means things of, of trying to take the biblical commitments seriously, like giving away a full 10% of his income. And after convincing his wife to, to giving away this 10%, they, they find some different charities to which they can donate. They made the donations electronically, and he writes this. He says, the giving was painful. I mean, 10%? That would have an impact on our lives. Vacations would need to be scaled back. Furniture would have to wait. It was a huge amount. When I pressed send on the donations, my palms got wet. My heart rate spiked. But then he goes on to say this. He says, it was pain mixed with pleasure. When the confirmation emails pinged in, I felt good. He said there's a haunting line in the movie The Chariots of Fire spoken by Ian Charlson who plays a deeply religious sprinter in the 1920 Olympics. He says, when I run, I feel his pleasure. And as I gave my money away, I think I might have felt God's pleasure, which is odd because I'm agnostic. I don't even know if there is a God or not, but I felt some higher purpose. It was like a cozy ember that started to fill the back of my neck and slowly spread its warmth throughout my skull. I felt like I was doing something I should have done all my life. Scott McKenzie in the Generosity Challenge says this. He says, if A.J. Jacobs, an agnostic, experienced God's pleasure, what does it mean for us who already believe in a loving and generous God? How might our relationship with God change as a result of our giving? What would it be like to be as loving and as generous as God. Now the truth is we can't out-love or out-give God, but as people created in God's image, people created to love and to give, to care for the earth and care for each other, to use our talents to create and bless others, we are called to strive to live that out. In the next few weeks, you're going to be hearing more on this theme, more of what it means to give, more of what it means to be generous, and it doesn't always come easy. It means breaking with this culture of, of mine and more. It means coming closer to recognizing who we are and whose we are as God's people. It isn't easy, but God is with us as we face the questions, as we struggle with that question of what it means to strive and claim that basic promise of our identity. We are God's people, richly blessed to be a blessing to others. May you know that truth. May you know that you are the spitting image of God. May it bless you and may it shape you in the days and the weeks to come. Amen.